2: But notice that nothing's really pulled back here, except that you don't see reference to content moderation as a vector for national security risk. They're not saying it's not, but it's, it's just not being highlighted the way that data collection is clearly being highlighted.
1: I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. June 17th, 2021. TikTok has rapidly become one of the most popular apps for teenagers across the world to dance, lip-sync, and share details about their lives. But if you cast your mind back to last year, specifically August 2020, you may recall that the app's future in the United States suddenly fell into doubt. The Trump administration began arguing that the app's ownership by the Chinese company ByteDance raised problems of national security for the United States. ByteDance was ordered to divest from TikTok, and the app, along with the popular China-based chat app WeChat, faced U.S. sanctions. But you might have noticed that your teenager is still making TikTok videos. And President Biden issued his own executive order last week revoking Trump's sanctions. So what on earth is happening? On this week's episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on our online information ecosystem, Evelyn Duick and I spoke to Bobby Chesney, Lawfare co-founder and Charles I. Francis professor-in-law at the University of Texas School of Law, about what's happened to TikTok over the past year. Bobby brought us up to speed with the Trump administration's offensive on TikTok, why the app has survived so far, and why TikTok shouldn't breathe easy just yet about Biden's executive order. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 17th, a TikTok TikTok. Bobby, we wanted to invite you on because last week the Biden administration revoked the sanctions imposed by the Trump administration in August of last year on the apps TikTok and WeChat, which I think people have sort of popularly referred to as the, the TikTok ban. Uh, we'll, We'll walk through this whole saga, whether it really is a ban and what happens now. But before we get to that, we wanted to ask you absolutely crucial prior question, which is, have you personally used TikTok?
2: Oh, my God. I'm so glad you asked me that. So I really want to in terms of making my own TikToks. But my teenage daughters have said, don't you dare. And I don't blame them one bit for that. On the other hand, I have definitely used it a bunch because we can't go more than an hour in our house without one of them saying, hey, check out this TikTok. So yeah, I've, I've watched a lot of TikToks. There are some favorites for sure, but I'm not making any. Not yet. But what do you guys think? Should uh, Should all of us in the podcasting business be starting our own TikTok channels?
3: I mean I think it is the future for sure. Should we uh we should have actually done this through TikTok rather than a boring old anachronistic podcast. Right? 15 second clips to try and explain the the TikTok ban. I think it's probably important to describe a little bit what TikTok is because that might be important to understanding why or might why not it might be distinctively problematic. We haven't done extensive market research, but I bet our podcast audience falls just a little bit outside the main TikTok user group, which is primarily sixteen to twenty-four year olds. Uh, as you said about your your daughters, I don't know if they fall into that bracket, but you know it's the youngsters, and there's a lot of them on there. Uh, last year, there were around a hundred million active U.S. users, which is nearly. growth in two years and around half of those users log in every single day. So, If our listeners have encountered TikTok clips, it's probably from their kids showing them to them or, you know, on on another social media platform like Twitter. But I think that probably doesn't really capture how it's sort of different to other social media platforms, which is that when you open it, you get fed a bunch of clips sort of in an endless stream on your For You feed, which comes from people that you don't know and you don't necessarily actively seek out. They're just sort of recommended to you, which is a, a pretty distinctive feature in a lot of ways, I think it's it's famously addictive the magic of tiktok is supposedly the ai recommendation algorithm that is really good at working out what you want it's largely known for dance clips but at one stage tiktok worked out that i liked puppies and babies doing cute things and my work productivity absolutely plummeted so one of the other main distinguishing features of TikTok and WeChat, which we will come to as well, is who owns it. So Bobby, what is China's involvement in TikTok?
2: All right. So TikTok used to be a US-based company called Musical.ly and same basic idea, short video clips, uh, obvious music orientation. A China-based company called uh, ByteDance acquired Musical.ly a while while back, and someone had the idea to shift the name to TikTok. The rest is history, as you described, Evelyn. Immensely successful, but the parent company is a China-based company. TikTok itself is this is TikTok US, and so it's a US-based subsidiary of the China-based parent.
1: So you've written six posts, I think, on Lawfare about TikTok since August of last year, which I, I think is a pretty good indication of how long and winding the, the story has been. Um, we do want to review the Biden executive order. But before we do that, I figured, you know, we we might as well start at the beginning of the story to get a sense of, you know, what Biden was revoking in the first place. And I know that before before we go into the details, um, there's a particular story about the, the role of TikTok and its interaction with Trump that Evelyn wanted to to make
3: sure that we covered Evelyn, if you want to take that away. (laughs) Sure. I mean, I think it's really important that we don't overlook one of my favourite details here, which is that there's a good reason to believe that a bunch of teenagers and K-pop fans uh, may have started this entire thing by, in June last year, posting TikToks encouraging others to reserve tickets for a Trump campaign rally in Tulsa and then no-show so that Trump played up anticipated crowds and then dramatically under-delivered. The teens claim to have registered hundreds of thousands of tickets. Whether that's true or not is is anyone's guess, I mean, why would teenagers ever exaggerate? I'm sure that's not at all what happened, um, <laughs> but the whole fiasco did get a ton of press that was really embarrassing for Trump, and it was only a month or so later that Trump issued the two executive orders targeting TikTok and WeChat, or the first of them, which I think is just kind of a hilarious historical detail in this whole thing
2: it's so true there's there's a uh, a great headline in some news article from around that time and we'll quote it here k-pop stands successfully sabotaged trump tulsa rally and you think like people you know the rip van winkle person who wakes up who's been out for like 10 years comes alive in the summer of 2020 and they read that sentence and try what is k-pop what is stands why is donald trump in tulsa is he involved in a in a political event? Why is that? <laughs> Everything about it is crazy, crazy, perfect. Two thousand twenty.
1: And you know why are all these people wearing masks, right? <laughs> right.
2: What is happening?
1: <laughs> so, so a month or so after that uh, embarrassment for Trump in Tulsa, Trump issued these two executive orders targeting TikTok and WeChat, which is a, a very popular chat app, particularly among people in China and in the Chinese American community. So. Walk us through this, Bobby. What was the goal of these orders? How do they interact with IEPA? What is IEPA? Um, And how exactly would the orders have worked if they had gone fully forward?
2: Well, of course, the most fun thing to say and the required thing to say about IEPA whenever it comes up is it's really more fun to call it IEPA. Give it that little, I don't don't know what the uh, diacritic markings for that would be, but that's very important.
3: I mean, the Australian pronunciation is Yipa,
2: obviously <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> I like it. That's got a nice kind of Texasy kind of flair to it. I might adopt that. so how about how about this? So first of all, it, it begins with understanding that Congress decades ago delegated to the executive branch sort of a freestanding authority to impose sanctions in foreign affairs. So sanctions not on domestic things, but sanctions on international transactions. But it works a certain way. The way it works is this. Step one, the president must do a formal declaration of a so-called national emergency. Now, that makes it sound like it's really hard for the president to do, but it's it's not hard for the president to do. The word emergency is not really doing a lot of work there. It, It really would be better truth in advertising if the declaration was a declaration of a nationally important thing relating to international affairs. So when the president issues such a declaration, he he picks a topic, let's say, you know, the Middle East peace process back in the day or international terrorism or international malicious cyber activity. And he names that thing and nothing specifically happens just from the declaration. What has to then happen is a further action to invoke the International Emergency Economic Powers Act or YIPA, as we were just saying. And, and what happens there is the president, having declared the national emergency, can now either directly impose sanctions on uh, foreign entities or can more frequently delegate to either the Treasury Department or the, the Commerce Department or, or some other executive branch official the authority to go out there and based on directions from the president, under color of the national emergency, they can start designating this entity for its international arms trafficking or that entity for its sanctions busting, that sort of thing. Then this happens all the time. There's a there's a bunch of existing national emergencies at any given point in time and a lot of different YEPA-based or IEPA-based uh, sanctions regimes. Now, sometimes the president doesn't delegate. Sometimes the president's executive order that creates the sanctions system under IEPA, directly names somebody. And that's what's going to happen here with WeChat and TikTok. But there was an intermediate step before K-pop got involved, before there was a rally, uh, before there was the pandemic. So roll back to May 2019. Trump's in office. He issues executive order 13873. And this is one of those that sets up a sanction system. He declares a national emergency with respect to what I will describe as adversarial foreign ownership of or a stake in the U.S. information and communication technology and services supply chain. So that's often abbreviated ICTS. And so this is the ICTS supply chain national emergency and creation of a system where the commerce department is asked to set up sanctions and to identify foreign-owned entities that pose a threat or foreign entities whose ownership stake in american icts would be bad for national security and commerce you know so they don't directly name anybody in that they just set it up and everyone understands this is a serious shot across the bow for china but no company's been designated for sanctions yet it's just the creation of the system Commerce then goes out and begins its usual process of promulgating regulations and getting feedback on them, and everyone understands that eventually, at some point, there will start to be Chinese companies—you uh, know, the Huawei's of the world—somebody's going to get designated. Even though Huawei, of course, is a whole separate story with its own set of designations, so that's on the table. Roll forward to 2020, you get to the summer of 2020 and the Tulsa incident that, that Evelyn was just describing. Is, is that the precipitating factor? Would the sanction have come anyways? We don't know, but it's fun to speculate. In any event, by August, really sort of unexpectedly, uh, you get sanctions calling out TikTok in particular based on that May 2019 ICTS sanctions framework. So there's not some new and different declaration of a national emergency. It builds on the existing one. And what's surprising here, it's not even that surprising that the White House would take direct action as opposed to waiting for the Commerce Department to do something. What's surprising is singling out TikTok, which wasn't on anyone's top 10 list of the companies with Chinese ownership stake that would likely be sanctioned under Executive Order 13873 when it was created the year before. Now, WeChat also gets sanctioned, as we mentioned, at the same time. And it's it's pretty clear that what went on here was that as as it became clear that the president wanted to sanction TikTok in particular, and the arguments were being developed as to why that would be, because you you certainly can't say because you know we got we got trolled by the stands of in connection with the Tulsa event, the arguments began to be developed that a. TikTok collects lots of user data and individually, in some cases, that's an, uh, an intelligence threat. And then collectively, from a mass database perspective, that also is an intelligence threat. Third, the possibility existed that, that perhaps Beijing had the ability to influence uh, content filtering, content moderation on TikTok and might be suppressing things like, you know, Tiananmen Square, 1989, those sorts of searches. And there was even a reference eventually to the idea that maybe there'd be some affirmative injection of disinformation in there, although I think that was the thinnest part of it. So when those types of arguments are being put forward as reasons perhaps to sanction TikTok under this 2019 executive order, someone at some point clearly said, hey, you know what? I mean, I don't know. Maybe those things are true about TikTok. They're definitely more true or more obviously of concern. As to WeChat. And so it'll look weird if we come out with sanctions on just TikTok. And it, it appears someone then said, okay, well, fine, let's do both. And that's what happened in August of 2020. Both of them in new executive orders get directly named and directly sanctioned under the existing framework.
1: So how seriously do you take these concerns about TikTok and WeChat? So I feel like during the, this sort of initial period in August 2020, in the, the following months, I felt like I, I saw, at least on Twitter, a really striking divergence between American technology writers, many of whom were really skeptical of the administration's moves and felt that they, they mostly reflected sort of personal animus on Trump's part or even xenophobia. And then experts on writers on, on China, even those who were otherwise extremely hostile to the Trump administration, even the Trump administration's China policy, who were actually saying, you know, maybe not about WeChat, but about TikTok, like, yes, there are, there are concerns here. How can or should we disentangle the sort of peculiarities of Trump as a person from the administration's stated concerns over TikTok? And do you take those seriously?
2: Yeah, so I I I think we can all see that it, it's really tempting to dismiss it all as, as very unique, you know, a fit of peak by Trump, et cetera. I, I think that does a disservice to the underlying concern. So first let's remember that the underlying sanctions framework took account of some of these sorts of concerns long before TikTok was something that the president was aware of. But more importantly, notice the larger context. A large part of what this is about is international data transfer. And if you look around the world, it seems like one of the the characteristic features of the past couple of years is just about everyone getting very wound up from a privacy protective perspective about international data transfers, the data about their citizens going abroad elsewhere. We see this constantly coming out of Europe vis-a-vis Facebook and other American companies that at least until recently have been able to pull uh, data about European citizens who are using their platform out to the United States. Certainly, there is no such thing as an American company able to pull data about Chinese citizens out of China to the United States because the Chinese won't allow that at all. And let's let's remember, because we, we've gone pretty far in the conversation without saying it, it is already a dramatically unlevel playing field where Chinese companies and the discretion they have to operate in the United States is light years beyond what American companies of a like kind are able to do in China. So that, that, that needs to be said at some point. So there it's been said. Does TikTok, as of August 2020, was TikTok really presenting, was it demonstrated as a threat on the various dimensions i mentioned before well it's first of all it's very hard to know for sure what's going on there's there's no doubt that there's not like a lot of smoking gun evidence lying around but in theory is there a possibility for that information to have gotten out to a place where the ministry of state security or others could insist under chinese domestic law on access to it i don't i don't think a strong case was made that this has been happening i think the stronger case is the theoretical one of well it could happen And of course, that's given rise to endless conversations about what sort of organizational and technological designs could be in place to make sure that, well, it can't happen. I do think if you look at some of the Citizen Lab reporting on TikTok, it's pretty clear that there was some funny business with content moderation in the early days. TikTok as such hasn't been around that long and the company's position is, yes, we had some trouble with content moderation. We were just trying to figure out how to do this early on. We've gotten better at it. That wasn't a sign of pernicious Beijing influence. That was a sign of us being an immature company, but we've gotten better. I, I think that's a real concern, a very legitimate concern. I don't think we have any evidence of injection of a state-sponsored disinfo through the corporate structure. And I think that's probably the weakest of the indicated concerns there. But I think the data access is a legitimate thing to be concerned about, both individually in a few cases and collectively more generally. And I think all that's true in spades for WeChat, which is the more serious of the two in terms of the volume of people using it as to whom Beijing might have an interest. WeChat is widely used in the United States by the Chinese diaspora for communications back to people in China. It's uh, used for many more things besides communication, but it's, it's an immensely important pathway that insofar as the Ministry of State Security is able to have any insight into what's being said there, it would be a goldmine for them. And I think there's plenty of reason to believe that that could be indeed something that occurs.
3: Great. So we'll come back to so many of the things that you just raised there, including, you know, WeChat and the international picture. I think one of the things that you just sort of raised that it's worth underlining is that with so many of these platforms, and it's true of TikTok, but it's true of all of them, we just don't have transparency into the content moderation that they do at all. Obviously, China's involvement makes it more worrying, perhaps in in the case of TikTok. But, you know, Bing briefly blocked, images of Tank Man from the searches of Tiananmen Square last week or the week before in, in worldwide searches. And we have no transparency into why that might have happened. The excuse that they gave was accidental human error. And it's just, you know, there's basically no visibility on on any of these apps, which is what's what's so problematic and it leaves to people speculating. But before we come back to any more of that and, and dig in more deeply, I think it's important to get sort of still some of the more, the TikTok about this whole thing out first, which is that a few weeks after the TikTok and and WeChat orders that we just were discussing, uh, the White House issued another order under CFIUS. So what's CFIUS? Why does this country love ridiculous acronyms? What's the difference between this and the prior orders? And was was this necessary? And then somehow Microsoft got involved or Walmart or what's the story here?
2: (laughs) It it is sort of, there's a Keystone Cops kind of aspect to a lot of what happened here. But let let me explain what CFIUS is. It's an acronym for the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And so it's just a fancy way of describing an interagency body that is empowered by statute to review transactions that entail foreign investors or buyers who are taking stakes or acquiring American companies. So like a classic example that got a lot of attention uh, many years back was a foreign effort to purchase a company that runs several of the major ports, ports of entry. And and that gets reviewed because you know, God forbid, you know, somebody foreign might own this. Maybe this is no big deal, or maybe it's a genuine security threat. You ought to have representatives of all of the right agencies with the right kind of classified information available to them, considering whether this is in fact a bad idea selling our security, as it were. And so they have the ability not just to disapprove a transaction, a corporate transaction on the front end. They can go back and retroactively review transactions that have long since been consummated and unwind them in order divestment. And that has been a capability. So Cifius has grown in its authorities. It's got uh, a wider scope today than it used to. It's got more resources today than it used to. It's got more business today than it used to. And before Trump and TikTok became a thing, CFIUS was already looking back at the ByteDance acquisition of Musical.ly to determine whether what had now become this immensely popular platform, which was gathering tons of US person information and potentially making that available to a Chinese headquartered company, uh, that was under review. And what would have happened if there had never been the the, the Trump TikTok thing? I don't know. But we do know that not long after the sanctions, there was a completely independent and separate determination by CFIUS to recommend divestment. And so the White House ordered divestment or unwinding of the acquisition by Bydance of Musical.ly, which is all, (laughs) this is really funny. It's, It's all great to say that, but how do you, do that there has to then be some pathway in in the the corporate transaction space to actually do that and and as you mentioned there was sort of this bizarre set of of trial balloons about well maybe maybe Walmart can get involved here or maybe maybe this company will get involved there were things where the white house seemed to be blessing one arrangement and then it all came unwound uh, in part because it just wasn't clear whether the the new arrangement was in any way actually going to address the international data transfer threat or address it adequately enough to to make it all worth the candle and all that still stands when when the Biden administration revoked the IEPA sanctions on TikTok the other day it did not touch the entirely separate matter of the CFIUS divestment order that's still sort of sitting there waiting to be negotiated to a resolution one way or the other
1: and so before we we get to the specifics of the, the Biden order, I do want to clarify one one thing, right? So you were just talking about the sort of question of the mechanics of how on earth do you actually do this when it comes to syphys. I also want to make sure we're clear about the mechanics of how the the sanctions would have worked. So as as I kind of mentioned at the top, people describe this as a, a TikTok ban or a WeChat ban. Like, was it a ban? You know, I think there was this idea that the, you know, the Commerce Department would say, no more TikTok. And then TikTok would sort of suddenly disappear off everyone's phones in the United States. Like, would that have happened? How would it have actually worked?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a super interesting part of it. I think that's sort of the common theme of all this is it's really easy to sort of say top line, all right, there shall be divestment, but then like who's buying it? And and then on the sanction side, same thing. All right, there shall be sanctions on TikTok USA within a certain number of days But what the original order in August of 2020, where President Trump sanctioned TikTok and WeChat, what it actually said was in a certain number of days, the Commerce Department shall take action to implement this in a particular way. And everyone sat there thinking, well, what's that going to be? Is it going to just be sort of a blanket? No one in America can so much as sell a sandwich to this corporate entity? Or is it going to be something more nuanced than that? And the end result was very nuanced, very complicated. It did not mean the instant termination of of all commercial transactions with this company, such that even the you know the custodial crew could no longer come in to clean the building at night. I'm not going to get into the, the fine details, but suffice to say that it it's probably best characterized as having arranged things such that there could be no new downloads of the app beyond a certain point. And eventually it probably would just sort of wither on the vine because of certain other services that could no longer be provided. And it, it almost felt like a, a a muddling, middling, middle path to try to not directly crush the company, but rather to begin to to choke it off, mindful that in the case of TikTok, that anyways, there was the CFIUS divestment order. And it seemed like what what the, the process was aiming towards was trying to keep the, the, the value of the company, uh, the value expressed by all the teenagers of America and watching all the, all the uh, TikToks on the app, trying to keep that value there and, and kind of keep it on life support so it could then be the basis for a transaction. Because if you're trying to get the company to divest... At the same time that you're ruining their product and killing it off and killing their market, well, you're making it really hard to divest. It, it loses its value to the buyer. So it seemed like they were trying to keep the value there while also seeming to be serious in their purpose, presumably hoping there'd be an off-ramp. Now, this is important. WeChat did not have an off-ramp. No one thought there was going to be a divestment of in the formation of you know this new independent WeChat USA. That was never in the cards there, but it was in the cards for TikTok. And so for a certain time there, and I think, you know, if Trump had been reelected, we'd be looking at sooner or later, some purely American owned or mostly American owned version of TikTok that stays in operation. And then a real moment where WeChat just isn't working in the U.S. anymore.
3: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend, but what won't change? Needing health insurance.
0: and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
1: So all of this sparked a lot of litigation. TikTok sued over the sanctions. Um, I'm curious if you could just walk us through how that went and also talk about the specific causes of action they pointed to. I mean, they they made sure. arguments under AIPA. They also pointed to uh, the platform's First Amendment rights. Um, I'm curious what you think of that
0: argument.
2: Yes, this is so interesting because there's a there's a traditional way of looking at national security related litigation where the first principle is that supposedly the courts defer, perhaps even to an extreme degree, to the executive branch when it takes actions. One of the classic cases you learn in national security law is the Curtis Wright Export Corporation case. And and that case was entirely about deference to the executive branch when the president is imposing sanctions in foreign affairs. So it's like spot on point from a certain perspective. But the reality is that the Trump administration was different from all the others in so many ways. And one of the ways that the Trump administration has been different is in the way it is received in the courts or was received in the courts. So often with a degree of skepticism that you, I think it's fair to say, wouldn't quite have been there with a president of any other party in any past circumstance. Because the general sense that when he was taking actions, it wasn't necessarily, and TikTok's a great example of this, it wasn't necessarily on the foundation of the usual considerations when the executive branch takes an action in national security space, normally one assumes that, well, this is, this is the president acting on top of the feedback of the intelligence community and the military, et cetera, law enforcement. There was so much suspicion that no, this, this was sort of an, ad hoc judgment. And it takes away that foundation of comparative institutional competence. That's one of the two major theoretical foundations for the whole deference model that you've seen in the past century or so in American jurisprudence. So I say all that as a way of of framing that it's perhaps no surprise that the administration found that it was doing really badly in these WeChat and TikTok related lawsuits that sprang up. And there, there are two dimensions and you mentioned them both where they were losing at the lower court level. Now, would that have stuck as, it, as these cases would have made their way up to the higher ranks of the courts? I don't know. I'm very skeptical about one of them, but it might have stuck as to the other. So here, here are the two. First, IEPA. There was a statutory problem with using IEPA in the case of these two entities for the following reason. Congress at one point added some exceptions that clawed back or limited the IEPA sanctions authority that is given by that statute to the president. In particular, and I'm going to gloss over some of the nuance here, just in the interest of time, there's an exception such that you can't sanction foreign entities in ways that preclude the distribution of informational materials. And and so the paradigm there would be like, Hey, North Korea is, you know, embargoed under IEPA, but I'd like to be able to receive a a copy in the mail of the the workers daily or whatever uh, periodical. And this exception means that it can't be a sanctions violation to engage in that transaction. At least that's the the core meaning of it. So the argument arose uh, with TikTok in particular, although this is an argument that applies in both cases, that maybe that exception to the sanctions authority should be understood to apply writ large to the information transfer platform itself that is TikTok, that is WeChat. Uh, never mind that. It, especially for TikTok, very often the, the information being transferred is actually you know from one U.S. teenager to another U.S. teenager. But setting that aside, at least one court, maybe more, I can't recall right now, but at least one court thought, you know what, that's right. I think the statute actually a- applies here. The exception applies here. So as long as that exception applies, you just can't use IEPA for this type of foreign entity. Now. That may well have stuck. I think on appeal, we we don't really know for sure what could have happened. We also don't know what might have happened in Congress if if a court of appeals ended up embracing that decision. It is not that hard to imagine that this Congress might have come in with uh, let's let's imagine say uh, a provision in the next National Defense Authorization Act to tweak that statutory exception to make clear that it doesn't preclude sanctions against a Chinese own connected software application like this. In any event, that that's one area where the sanctions were really vulnerable and in fact, were failing in that setting. What about the First Amendment argument? A judge in California accepted the argument that the First Amendment rights, not so much of, of WeChat, but of the WeChat users in the United States, that their speech was interfered with to the point where it was a First Amendment violation. Uh, I think this is just Wrong on many, many dimensions. And I'm having listened very carefully to the Ninth Circuit's oral argument uh, from several months back. I'm reasonably confident they were going to get a split decision, but I think they were going to get a 2-1 decision going in the government's favor, rejecting that First Amendment analysis. But you never know. And you're not, you not—you certainly don't know what would have happened on Bonk. That was bubbling up through the Ninth Circuit. All that stuff's been on hold as the Biden administration reviewed whether it was going to keep the sanctions now that they've taken the action that they have, I imagine. So the, those litigations are going to go away. There's a question about whether the earlier lower court opinions will be vacated or not, but they're not circuit opinions. They're not you know binding precedent in that larger sense. So I'm not sure uh, really that we know where the law stands on those issues.
3: So can I push on that last point that you made about the First Amendment rights of WeChat users and that Californian district court decision? I'm curious for you to unpack a little bit more why you think it's just flat out wrong. It's fun to make this all about the idea that this is just teenagers lip syncing to little Nas on on TikTok, but WeChat is a pretty different beast. And one of the things that Judge Beeler in that district court case talked about was how WeChat is irreplaceable for the Chinese American community. And it's often the only way for its users to reach their networks in China, because, as you mentioned before, all of the American apps are banned there. And one of the things that the judge said was that it didn't dismiss the national security concerns by any means and and sort of obviously took those at at their highest given, you know, as a preliminary injunction, but said that there were more sort of, I guess, proportionate ways or, or least restrictive means that, the administration could take, um, and that banning it completely was banning substantially more speech than necessary to serve the government's significant interest in national security. And this is something we talk about in, in international context when other governments ban apps entirely. You know, India bans TikTok or Nigeria bans Twitter, and we talk about how that's a significant burden on the user's free speech, right? Like the the fact that they need these platforms to talk and to protest and to organize. So why is that flat out wrong in America?
2: Well, so I think it's flat out wrong to portray WeChat as, as unique and indispensable as opposed to most convenient, most widely used. There, there are lots of other ways to still communicate. the uh, The government's brief in the Ninth Circuit does does a fine job, and the oral argument did a fine job of just enumerating all the other ways you can still communicate, acknowledging that it, it's clear from a market preference perspective that a, a large number of persons in the Chinese diaspora in the United States would would much prefer. From convenience perspectives, to use WeChat as their preferred means of communication. The First Amendment doctrine in the United States is very clear that you know, shutting down the preferred medium of communication. Does not, in and of itself, get you a First Amendment violation as long as there are these alternatives. Um, so, the example given at the oral argument was about a famous case involving billboards, where the the would-be advertiser very much wanted to communicate that way and was not able to do so. The other ways were not as good, not as efficient, and and that didn't suffice to prevent the government from being able to act on what was otherwise a sufficient government interest, which in that instance was a relatively weak government interest having to do with aesthetics of highways. Here, we're talking about what, as you say, what Judge Beeler acknowledged was for purposes of this argument, they accepted as true in full weight, the national security interest of the US government. And by the way, it's kind of funny to put it as US government. It's the national security interest of the American society. Uh, as as expressed by the government, so I just think, as a matter of First Amendment doctrine, it, it was it was doctrinally wrong to treat the convenience of WeChat as dispositive, or it was factually wrong to treat WeChat as not just most convenient and attractive, but actually somehow an indispensable single point. And then I would add. If if it were the case, which it isn't, but if it were the case that WeChat was the only way to communicate because that is how the Chinese Communist Party had arranged things, it does seem passing odd that it could be the case that American constitutional law should be interpreted, must be interpreted in a way that allows a foreign adversary or a competitively adversarial foreign government to arrange a circumstance in which because they choose to discriminate far worse against american companies we become constitutionally bound to allow them to use an app that may present these concerns that just doesn't seem like it could be right
3: okay so i want to keep pushing just a little bit because i think this is really interesting and important for you know the the digital sovereignty debates happening Internationally, whether or not, and you make a compelling point about First Amendment doctrine, I think there's a real sort of international relations stake here as well. There's a part of this that's a little bit like, oh, boo hoo, the US is upset about having a dominant tech platform in its country that is owned by a foreign corporation, and, you know, that, like, welcome to how the rest of the world has felt for a while. I want to be very clear the US government's relationship with American platforms is nothing like the Chinese government's, and there are First Amendment protections for speech here, so we shouldn't draw a false equivalence, but at the same time, a lot of those transparency concerns that we might have about TikTok or WeChat apply to Facebook or YouTube. You know, Jonathan Zittrain wrote, I think it was maybe 10 years ago now, uh, Facebook could decide an election and no one would be the wiser, and that's still true. And so I'm, I'm wondering sort of the implications for this, not as a matter of First Amendment doctrine, but when we're talking about what other countries are doing now in terms of asserting Digital sovereignty mm-hmm. in, like, as we're seeing India doing, as we're seeing Nigeria doing, as I was just sort of talking about before. You know, the points that you made about WeChat—it's not indispensable. Uh, we can say to the Indian population, "Well, you can just use Ku, which is a local alternative, or you know, you can email or text. Like, it's not the only way of communicating. But I think we sort of still do feel somewhat uneasy about the idea that banning Twitter is something that might happen around the world, or at least we feel that there are significant. Free expression concerns with that 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 happening. So, how would you think about drawing principled lines between these situations because they are obviously different, but it also you know does raise the specter of s- some sort of hypocrisy for the US to go around banning certain platforms but raise objections to it elsewhere.
2: You know, there's no question that the larger debates about data localization, in particular are impacted by this. And I think one reason why the Biden order, which we'll get into the details of in a minute, one reason why it's calling for this extended period of thinking about what to do next is they do have to pay a little bit of attention, at least to the question of the positions we take vis-a-vis WeChat. How does that impact our own negotiating positions where we're, we're looking out for the rights of American companies as Europe insists on data localization for privacy reasons, I don't think there's any doubt that around the world, what we're seeing, and this is no great insight, everyone in this space who listens to the show will all know this already, left and right around the globe, people are taking steps to put up those barriers that you know. in the US-China context, we call it decoupling. In the US-European context, we think about GDPR. But in all these contexts, the common denominator is a growing, a gradual appreciation by sovereign governments that data is power, data is significant, data is important individually and collectively, and increasingly taking steps to throw up the barriers so that data from within their country isn't flowing out to someone that they aren't comfortable with. And in some contexts, like the European American context, that's inflected more with uh, a melange of, of rights considerations, but also economic competitiveness uh, and other such factors, and then the U.S.-China context, it's inflected much more with uh, concerns, direct concerns about espionage and statecraft. Uh, but it's all of a piece with this same growing recognition that there's there's something important about this. Now, I, I think it's perfectly fair and indeed necessary to recognize that. And I think the Biden administration clearly does recognize that, which is partly why they're proceeding slowly here. They're trying to figure out what is the combination of positions we can take that is most defensible and best serves America's interests, just like every other country is doing. I don't think it follows in any way that somehow it's it's a incumbent on the United States government to basically engage in unilateral disarmament in a context in which In this particular relationship, the other party, the People's Republic of China, I mean, I I don't even have the words to describe how unlevel the playing field is in terms of what they do and what they allow. And so the idea that in some way or fashion, we have to just kind of accept things as they are lest we seem like we're no longer the champions of of a more rules-based order type approach. I I just think that proves way too much. It's got to be the case that you can have some legitimate limitations, some interventions, and that doesn't mean that you have to therefore not complain about illegitimate or ill-motivated claims made by others elsewhere. But it also suggests that maybe the answer to this isn't just to flat ban WeChat, but instead to explore reasonable limitations. And of course, for TikTok too that have to do with tailored reasonable interventions to guard us person data in w- if that's the problem you've identified then is there not some combination of technological and organizational and oversight constraints that would give you a sufficient degree of comfort to allow the communication platform to exist but to address the data transfer concern and i think that's exactly what they're going to work on now but note too that that doesn't speak to what you brought up earlier, Evelyn, the content moderation concern, which is a different concern. And not to jump ahead to the Biden order, but the Biden order really primarily focuses on data transfer. And there's there's an element there about human rights as well, but conspicuously absent in the language of Executive Order 14034, the new order, there's not a lot of talk or really anything that gestures directly towards content moderation. And so one big question is, What, if anything, is the Biden administration's position on that? I think the Trump administration had made clear, at least in the TikTok and WeChat context, that it was also concerned about interference by the Chinese government in the information ecosystems represented by those two companies. It'll be interesting to see, uh, to say the least, whether the Biden administration expresses that same concern when they eventually come back to this topic.
1: So we we've had a lot of foreshadowing about what is in this Biden executive order. Let's actually talk about the order now that we've we've whetted listeners' appetites. So my impression is, you know, Joe Biden comes in, says TikToks, TikToks great, it's totally cool, we can forget about the whole thing. Is that is that right?
2: <laughs> he he uh, did not uh, do that. Now, in in many ways, this is I described it initially on Twitter as as sort of a middle path. It he did not. Uh, completely reject everything that happened before, broadly speaking, with the concern about the supply chain for information and communications, technology, and service. He does revoke the executive order for TikTok, for WeChat, and one we haven't mentioned yet. There was a third executive order in this sequence concerning Alipay, CamScanner, QQ Wallet, Shareit, Tencent QQ, and, and and more. So we we should acknowledge that as well he revokes the specific designations and in, in position of sanctions across those companies. But before he does that, the executive order opens by affirming the national emergency declaration that was declared in May 2019 in the original executive order in this sequence, the one I keep referring to as 13873. He affirms that the threat of Adversarial state influence over companies that have a stake in U.S. information and communication and technology services is a national emergency that it does need to be addressed, including through IEPA sanctions. And the the whole order is framed as, quote, elaborates on rather than uh, replaces or changes. It elaborates on that earlier determination. So it's a doubling down of of the idea that there's real national security risk in general here. It also expressly affirms the earlier determination during the Trump administration that the People's Republic of China is a adversarial foreign state within the meaning of executive order 13873. What is the elaboration that this executive order gives besides actually removing TikTok, WeChat and those other companies from the designated list and and kind of resetting that list to, to zero for a do over? Well, the order doubles down on the importance of addressing connected software applications, which is which is a phrasing that was used in the third executive order, the one that came after WeChat and TikTok that I just mentioned. This is a way of trying to describe the technology space occupied by WeChat, TikTok, and apps like that, connected software applications. And there's an explanation given here, two explanations as to why this matters, why this area, those types of apps are national security concerns. First of all, the data collection that they entail can be dangerous to U.S. national security at the individual level. So if, if some particularly important person is a TikTok user, you're, you're getting their biometrics. You know, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute and some other things. Uh, and the collective gathering of the mass haystack of personalized data about U.S. persons is also extremely useful uh, from an espionage and other perspectives as well. So that gets reaffirmed. That's straight out of what Trump had been saying as well. And then secondly... Conspicuously the Biden order says the United States seeks to promote accountability for persons who engage in serious human rights abuse if persons who own, control or manage these kinds of apps engage in serious human rights abuses or otherwise facilitate them this may we may impose consequences in actions separate from this order so there's an interesting passage there that's obviously responsive to the, to the current moment kind of the the Biden administration's more human rights focused orientation A shot across the bow of China saying, if a company that's in this space is a company that's presumably, you know, I think they're thinking of the Uyghurs, for example. If you're engaged in human rights abuse there, or maybe in Hong Kong or elsewhere, we may sanction you separately. And we're just going to take this occasion to warn you that that's another thing we might do. I'm not sure that's all that important, but I mention it because it's different from what came before. But notice that nothing's really pulled back here, except that you don't see reference to content moderation as a vector for national security risk. They're not saying it's not, but it's, it's just not being highlighted the way that data collection is clearly being highlighted. So that's, that's the whole sort of opening chunk of the executive order. Then come the actual actions building upon that. And the first big action, the one everyone focused on is the repeal of the TikTok, WeChat, and, and January 2021 set of designations. So all those companies can breathe a sigh of relief for the moment they're unsanctioned. Then there's all the homework that gets assigned, and the Secretary of Commerce gets all these homework assignments, and various other entities are told to help him with the homework assignment. Commerce has basically four months to study the question of the sale and transfer, or other other pathways to acquisition of U.S. person data to foreign entities. And what is it the US should be doing? What's the nature of the threat? Notice that this isn't specific to connected software applications. It's, it's more of a, a broad reference because you might have just regular corporate transactions that acquire companies that have data. It's not about connected software apps. Maybe it's a genomics uh, or other biotech type company. All that stuff is presumably within the scope of this four month review. And by the way, this language is almost identical to language that the Trump administration had in its January 2021 executive order, the one that followed WeChat and TikTok by naming some additional companies and talking more broadly about connected service apps. It, too, talked about the need to have commerce examine what we should be doing more broadly to deal with US person data transfer. So to come back to the conversation with Evelyn a moment ago, yes, this is all entirely about the global shuffling going on with data localization and and digital connectedness. Now that's one homework assignment. Then there's a separate homework assignment with a six-month fuse where commerce is supposed to advise on what steps to take about connected software apps in general. And that's sort of the broad policy review for this entire space. And in the meantime, commerce is told at the end of the order, by the way, we don't mean don't do your job under the original executive order 13873. You should continue to evaluate transactions as they occur or as they've already occurred. And you should potentially issue sanctions under IEPA as originally envisioned whenever the right occasion arises. And here, the only thing that's really novel, and this is really a reaffirmation of what, what Trump had done then, uh, the only thing that's novel is there's some clarification about the process to be used because. Part of what's happening is a response by the Biden administration to this sense that Trump just sort of knee jerk sanctioned TikTok without engaging in a serious substantive review. Now, whether that's true or not, we'll we'll set that aside. There's a listing of key factors, a long listing of key factors in the executive order. I'm not going to read it all out here, but they name a bunch of factors that are all the sorts of things that people have been talking about since the TikTok sanction in particular. As people have grappled with, what would it look like to try to create a system where the company is ultimately owned by a foreign parent company, but it has US person data in the local subsidiary, and we can live with that because of the following sets of controls? A lot of that stuff, those variables, they're all enumerated here, and commerce is basically told to bear all that in mind as you evaluate whether we can live with the transactions that have occurred here. Well, that's basically it. That's the new executive order.
1: And so how much difference then is there really between the Biden and the Trump administration's approaches on this? Is this an example of Trump doing something totally crazy and then Biden coming in and, you know, being cool headed and taking a different approach? Or is it an example of Trump doing something maybe for the wrong reasons and with a lot of inappropriate bluster, but that's not actually out of step with U.S. policy?
2: I think it's very close to the latter, though it remains to be seen, of course, whether upon further, more patient, possibly more rigorous review, although again, we don't really know, but we speculate. It remains to be seen whether the result of all that will be a return to sanctions, at least in part for WeChat seems quite possibly. I would not be comfortable if I were them thinking that they won't get re-sanctioned. TikTok that seems less likely but you never know and and when the next day after the Biden order there was there were news accounts of the new data policy on TikTok talking about yes we do we do take facial recognition information and biometrics that sort of stuff increases the chance that there will need to be some sort of additional leverage of course again remember CFIUS divestment leverage is still there maybe that's all the leverage that's needed But I think all the companies that had been sanctioned and that just got a reprieve need to understand that it's just a reprieve and that the broad architecture or bones of the sanctions regime here designed to protect US person data in the face of of Chinese government, let's say, influenced, even though not necessarily owned companies, that, that concern has been reaffirmed and shifted from shaky... Trump foundations to firm Biden foundations, which is to say it's got a nice new coat of paint and it's still there.
3: It's fascinating because one thing that I find so striking about all of this is that there was a very ro- robust debate at the time of the Yeeper orders um, (laughs) about whether Trump was right to have concerns about TikTok and WeChat with, you know, as Quinta was saying earlier, many very serious people who were otherwise no fans of Trump saying that there were very real reasons to have concerns about these apps. But then when it appeared that Trump kind of just forgot or couldn't be bothered following through on the orders other people also somehow forgot or 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 it sort of slipped out of the public eye a lot and yet TikTok and WeChat are pretty much the same apps that they were last year perhaps with more users or perhaps they're even worse you mentioned biometrics that i assume is as a reference to earlier this month TikTok added a clause to its privacy policy that said it may now collect biometric identifiers and biometric information including face prints and voice prints which sounds somewhat scary and yet we're not we're not talking about it as much and i i, I guess this isn't so much a question as a as a comment but like how much of this was just part of the Trump show. Do you think there's any good reason for the inconsistent level of attention? Do you think my reading of, of what happened there is right? Or is this just, you know, we, we follow where Trump directs our attention so much over the past few years?
2: Well, it's both. I think it's it's the inattentiveness to the follow-through during the Trump administration, which has many reasons behind it. I mean, some of this is the sheer difficulty of, of actual implementation of government, but obviously the Trump administration had particular difficulties really beyond anything we'd seen with any other administration. Um, And there's lots of standard analysis of why that might've been. Is it, is it because of his mercurial and uh, highly personalized and personal way of doing things? Is it because all the personnel issues he had because of who he was and how he ran his business that led to so few people who otherwise would have been working in the executive branch under some other Republican president. So few of them being willing to serve under him and some resulting difficulties in running the business that that is probably part of it as well. Uh, but part of this, too, is the the sheer uh fleetingness of attention in the American information space as to what the story of the day is. And at a certain point, the TikTok story got old and people didn't really want to hear all these nuances. And once you got past the wave of Uh, fascinating stories about the potential sale of TikTok. And then that kind of fell through and the story got very complicated. And anyways, look over here, bright, shiny object. Oh, squirrel. Uh, There's all kinds of reasons why attention wanders elsewhere. And then the election comes and it seems like, well, we shouldn't pay any attention to this at all because there's going to be a new administration. What are they going to do? And uh, yeah, so attention wanders and that's part of the pathologies of getting things done in Washington.
1: It feels somehow appropriate for an app that traffics in extremely short videos that (laughs) are wandered Um, on that note, Bobby, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm thrilled to have been on the show.
1: You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's mini series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer this episode was Hamza Shitu. Our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review The Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.